Hey everybody, just a heads up that this episode features some cursing, so if that's not something you want playing with, I don't know, your kids in the car or, you know, whatever your personal preference is, just keep that in mind and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast where normally we rank every story from A to Z, uh, but instead uh, we have we have a little bit of a surprise and some fun for you. Isn't that right, Adam? That is correct. Uh, folks, we are joined today by the new captain of the Marauders, Steve Orlando. Steve, thanks for being with us this week. Uh, it's my pleasure, uh, and I'm excited to. This is one of my first X podcasts, so I'm excited to talk at length. Well, we are we are excited to have you. I know uh, when you got announced on the book, I got a big smile on my face because I saw the front cover that spoke directly to me. I like to think <laughs> as as someone who knows that Brimstone Love exists. Uh, it was, it was like, oh, we're doing this now. That's great. We're in good hands. We're fine. We're fine. <laughs> they gave me, they gave me the, uh, the cheap heat of, uh, bringing back somebody that I never expected and boy, is it work. And I'm very glad that we got, uh, the opportunity to talk to you here. Uh, cause I've gotten a chance. I guess everyone at this point has to read Marauders. I think it's off to a great start and definitely want to talk to you about where things go are going and you know, how we got there. You know, first, I kind of want to start with how we got there. You know, you've been in the comics industry as a pretty, you know, substantial player for a while. You've been putting out putting out a good amount of work, uh, mostly over at DC uh, with your stuff on, you know, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, uh, JLA. Just a lot of uh, a lot of work that you were putting out there. Uh, but now you are you're over here what's your uh what's your history with x-men uh and you know what's attracting you to you know these books uh i think there i mean folks have heard me say it before like i as an adult reader uh i i, I largely have been positioned as like a dc guy mm-hmm. um which was probably true to an extent um for a while uh because the first books that i was buying regularly uh, when we got a comic store in my town, ended up being DC books. But put a pin in that for a minute because you'll see how we get there. Uh, before then, I was buying things off the spinner rack or like flea markets uh, in central New York. And all those books were Marvel books. And they're also, they were like, they were not in consecutive order. You know, it was just whatever whatever you could find. So you know, for everybody who looks at me as like a deep cut or a continuity guy, it's probably because I was never reading things in the correct order. And I was just trying to... <laughs> figure out what had happened and, and see who looked, you know, interesting. Um, my first book comic I ever got in the mid eighties was West coast Avengers 16. Oh, wow. Uh, but to that end with X-Men, uh, because we didn't have a comic store in my, uh, in my town, or at least on my side of the city, uh, for a long time, my first entry point was, uh, both the infamous and amazing console arcade game. And then the pilot that went with it that I rented the shit out of at Video King prior to the Mm X-Men to the extent that I'd never read an X-Men comic in, you know, come, I think that was 91 uh, because I was like six. But then when the 92 show came out, that obviously had a much longer run. My only reference point was the video game and the, and the, and the pilot. So I, I thought I didn't know why like Dazzler was suddenly Southern and flying around. (laughs) Why Wolverine was Canadian. I was like, there was so, and I also was like, where the fuck is Colossus? He's my boy. And he's in like three episodes. So I, I had, you know, as with anything, it was a weird, uh, process and then i was also my father sold sports memorabilia so i knew a shitload about random characters uh because i spent i don't particularly like sports or at least not the sports to get sports cards in the 90s so i would be scouring for non-sports cards and so again before i had read a comic i had you know the like every x-men trading card set that you know mm-hmm. the one with the very sexy mojo 2 uh <laughs> you know like 
that, that look kind of like John Holmes plus Mojo. <laughs> um, so I had all those, so I knew all these characters, but I didn't really know how they fit together because I hadn't read the X-Men comics because they just were, I didn't have access uh, in any regular form. Uh, then we got a comic store and I immediately picked up Grant uh, and Howard on Justice League of America because it was like in the, in the mid, late 90s. Uh, what does this have to do with X-Men? Well, they ran the book and then Grant left and came to do new X-Men. And at that mm-hmm. point, I, you know, and again, showing my foolishness as a youth, I was like, who is this Frank Quitely motherfucker? This doesn't look <laughs> anything like Howard Porter. Fuck this <laughs> and I love Howard uh, and, and I love Frank now, obviously. Like, so, but I came and I basically stuck around um, as of new X-Men. That, however, wasn't my my only flirtation in the 90s because my mentors in comics actually were Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel, who okay. were on, on oh, wow. and uh, the main X-Men book at the time. I can't recall which was which, um, but I did, uh, when I first started going to shows and trying to learn how to write comics and break into comics, they were on, so they gave me a bunch of their work. So this is probably why I'm obsessed with Mero, Megan, and Cecilia Reyes, even though I wasn't a regular reader then because that was like, the big new characters. And I still, to this day, say that if Grant had come up with Mega three years later, he'd be like an all-timer. Okay. Listen, as someone as someone with more <laughs> than two framed pictures of Maggot in this room, I can uh, I, I can sympathize with that. The Kelly Siegel era is a wildly underrated time uh, because they were doing some wild stuff with those books. Well, yeah, and a lot of it got echoed, you know, by people who had a bigger spotlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily know that, that it, it was better accomplished, but their, you know, their story about Cerebra coming to life is not unlike Danger in any way. It's not. Uh, it's very similar. Uh, but that said, so I, you know, and I, just Mara was me, you know, like when as a teenager, her like carving this way to a dark ride on her door, I was like, ah, oh, this is so <laughs> dark. She's so conflicted. It's like Lydia Dietz like created child with Wolverine. It's wonderful. <laughs> and so I was big into that. And then when Grant came on, I follow, you know, I, to this day, I follow them anywhere. So um, I was on for a long, long time with that. Um, and just absorbed uh, in that world. And, you know, the, and the funny thing is, is that, uh, you know, I, I was on and off after that, but it's unquestionable to me. You know, you can see the things that I've already done in the annual, the things I did in Magneto and the Mutant Force. Like what I really found exciting about that run is that it was not necessarily just just running in place. Like there mm-hmm. were there were big changes. It was really treating the school like a school, which is something that I had in mind. Uh, and since then, the runs that I've really gravitated towards are the ones that really are are willing to give us a, not lasting change because do we ever get that in comics but periods of intense change mm-hmm. well speaking of which uh we are in the midst of sort of the i guess the third year um we're getting into destiny of x now um how were you recruited into the uh the x writing room um and not only like what's that experience like now but you know what was your experience sort of going from the outside and reading about house of X powers of 10 going into this era and now being a part of it? Like, how is that different? Uh, well, I mean, so it's funny. People will probably see that I joined and they'll have like a Charlie day conspiracy board about how this was <laughs> planned because I did curse of the man thing, the X-Men issue. Mm-hmm. And then I did Magneto the mutant force. But the truth is that both of those times I was like, I'm never going to get to fucking write these characters again. So I got to do ever have all the fun I can, which is why Mero was in, uh, you know, in, in um, magic along mm-hmm. with magic herself. Um, pardon me. And that's why everyone I've ever liked in X-Men was in the mutant force, including sky max, the sky master and uh, <laughs> Mr. One and Mr. Two, a character that I thought I would finally have Al beat on. And then he put him in fucking sword the same month that book came out. <laughs> we didn't even know each other at that time, but I was like, mother, of God, like, what do I have to do? Um, which, by the way, digression, but that Captain America annual by by the King uh, with Mr. One and Mr. Two is way ahead of its time. For if you are an X-Men reader and you've somehow skipped that random Captain America annual, which you might have, because why would you know? It's written and drawn by Kirby, and it's largely about, like, Cap trying to, like, white guy his way into a situation, and Magneto saying, like, no, you should let mutants handle mutant things because you don't really understand. 
and just just decades ahead of its time. So worth checking out, and that's where Mr. One and Mr. Two came from. Also peepers, uh, folks. <laughs> uh, Peeper, my second favorite person from Mutant Force behind Lifter. But <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I did those, and I always thought it was going to be the last time. And I think, you know, I was already very good friends with many people in the X-Men office. I don't know exactly who brought me up. I have my theories that it was probably Vita because we talk a lot and we both like wrestling and, and they're fantastic. And I'd worked with them at DC on, uh, on justice league. They did the, they did the reintroduction of Vixen with me. And they also mm-hmm. did the, the, you know, um, the Lee Serrano issue of Supergirl, which is the first time DC had a non-binary character. Uh, mm-hmm. so we, we were already pretty close. So my, my, my guess, uh, is that is that they brought my name up when it turned out that Jerry was going to be moving to the treehouse and, and and leaving the boat. Uh, but I don't know for sure. Could I go back in the slack and time travel? Yeah, but I feel like that's like term searching yourself in real life. You know, you don't <laughs> want to do that. So, um, but though that's my theory. And 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 they came to me and the, and the options were to continue Marauders or to pitch something from scratch. But the thing was, you know, when Jerry started the book, the, the mission was twofold and and it was it was rescuing mutants who couldn't get to Krakoa through her gate, and it was delivering these these mutant medicines via the Hellfire Trading Company. And I loved uh, I loved Jerry's run, and it did focus a lot on the Hellfire side of things. So it just mm-hmm. seemed natural to me as someone who has personally done disaster relief and rescue type things. Folks, you know, probably see me boosting my friend Jose Andres all the time on Twitter. Um, I've been in the trenches with him, Panama City, Florida, oh, wow. uh, after Hurricane Michael. So like, this is not something I've read about. It's something I've done with my own hands. Uh, and so it just seemed like a natural fit. I mean, could I build something from the ground up? Yeah, and I fucking hope I can someday. But that said, it was just so smooth to be like, we have a mutant rescue book you've lived this life. Like it, we, we should, we should, we should talk about it and talk about it. You know, I did that a little bit in, in, in wonder woman, but I never really have got to do sort of uh, a book that is really about the, the, the radical idealism uh, and simplicity in many ways of relief efforts. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you don't have Jose Andres on this boat. Now you have Kate pride, but it's very similar in that he's, he's a person but when you talk to him, things seem very simple, but his simple statements encapsulate something very complicated. You know, you, you, the, the, some pl- the whole city is condemned and, and the mission is always just, well, people are hungry, so we're going to bring them food. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's you're almost like, why do you even have to say that? But then you think about how complicated and intense that process really is once you expand it. So uh, it's something I did and it just seemed to make sense. Uh, obviously, I love, I mean, I love what Jerry's done with Kate. Um with the added uh, with the added note of realizing that uh, Leah was going to be transitioning into a new gig, which uh, folks kind of have heard some of, but not all of. So mystery. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> to not I mean, me turning down a chance to work with Akihiro, someone who basically much like Midnighter is the mutant version of me, an angry bisexual person who would gut everyone who challenges him if he could. Uh, again, I just couldn't pass it up. So it just seemed like the stars were aligning and that, and then that's a little bit of like copy edit bullshit, but it is true. Uh, in my case, like I, you know, they said I could do anything or this, but what I would have done in a perfect world was this. And it was taking over our marauders. Pardon me. No, that's, uh, that's a very exciting thing to hear. I know one of the, one of the stated goals that they had when they were going into this era and how they were branding it was, Hey, can we develop some, you know, new legacy titles out of this Marauders being one of them. Uh, And this is, this is definitely the, uh, the driving force of that. It's now gone to one of the things that X-Men has is yes, there's pirates. That's, that's part of X-Men now, right? I mean, there's pirates and for anybody who know, like, it's very clear that it's now pirates meet Star Trek. Like I even gave them their own, like to boldly go type type mission phrase. So like my influences are not subtle folks. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's in the great X-Men tradition. Uh, but yes. And the thing is too, is that Star Trek is innately hopeful. And I think that especially now that, that that's where destiny of X is as well. That's not to say it's going to be without conflict. It's going to be with intense conflict because mm-hmm. anytime you are hopeful, there's always people that get fucking pissed off about it. So um there'll be plenty of things blowing up still i promise you well that's that's exciting to see uh one of the things that you know when a new writer tends to come onto a book there tends to be blowing up of past <laughs> past uh 
plots, past character dynamics, things like that. Obviously, you're retaining a lot of stuff from Jerry's run on Marauders uh, with bringing in your own spin. Uh, but, you know, there's that was definitely a book that ended with, you know, some dangling plot threads and things like that. You're in an interesting position where the X office is very collaborative. People are not gone. They are still hanging around, having their own avenues to approach things that they might want to. But specifically with Marauders coming in, do you feel a stewardship towards that title to say, hey, these are some of the uh, these are some of the toys that were left over because of, you know, different reasons, say, for example, the uh, Aurora and Akihiro relationship from X Factor. Uh, with all that stuff sitting around in a big pot of this is what you could do. Do you feel uh, do you feel an obligation or a need to play with that stuff and you know take your own spin on it, or do you really like to say, okay, this is what was done in the past and it was great, but I want to you know blaze my own trail? Um, I mean, the answer, and this is a boring answer perhaps, but the answer is always somewhere in the middle between those <laughs> two things because to do the latter is just to be an asshole, uh, <laughs> and and. To, to also be slave to the former is to is to sort of kneecap yourself. So, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> yeah, but at the same time, like I'm stewarding, well, A, I say it all the time online when people are like, why don't you just undo X, Y, and Z that someone did? I am never a creator. I, I always try to respect what my peers have done, whether it's what I would have done or not, by the way, mm -hmm. um, because that's what I want people to do with stuff I've done. Um, so I would never just override things. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, are there things that I thought were uh, a good fit for me to pick up in this book? Things like you mentioned, Akihiro and Aurora, uh, the Kate Bishop sort of co-captainship. Um, Kate and Bishop. I just realized Kate Bishop is another. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole. That's a whole other bag of worms. Uh, Different thing. That's uh, okay. Kate Lucas. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and at the same time, if there were things that didn't seem a fit for the story we were going to tell, they're still going to be told somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, not everything that Jerry dropped uh, dropped off in a basket at the end of his run of Marauders is going to be taken care of in Marauders. But that is not to say it's not going to be taken care of. You know, it's like I saw someone online, God love you, and I respect your enthusiasm. That was like, oh well, what, what is how does Kate feel about losing Emma and Iceman? Well, you know, she lives in the world of the comics. She didn't lose Emma and Iceman. Uh, they're still around. I mean, and in the case of Emma, they're in a book together. It's just not mine. It's Kieran. <laughs> And in the case of Iceman, you know, he has his own journey and you've seen a little bit of it. Uh, you know, I'm very good at not spoiling news, but I would say that Luciano did a, an Iceman New Year's book. And at the end, it said Iceman will return. So I don't think it's a spoiler that Iceman will return, uh, you know, and in great hands, by the way. So mm -hmm. um, everything, I mean, everything, the, the benefit of being in a collaborative office is, yeah, like we have that tech board and we know it's got to be knocked off. And the things that are going to make sense to get knocked off plot wise and Marauders are going to get tied up. Mm -hmm. And the things that maybe don't fit for a rescue team book are still going to get tied up, but you might be surprised where. No, that's that's good. Uh, for folks who may have missed that, because it was it was a Marvel Unlimited comic, but there is a Iceman, uh, you know, New Year's holiday special that you should definitely check out uh, that Luciano did. That is really fun and definitely an enjoyable thing to uh, go see. Yeah, um, Steve, I want to just kind of build off of this idea of um, creators blowing things up because I, I want to ask you about something that you said before we came on the air, which was that in learning about what the Hickman like <laughs> thesis was going into the, the Hawksbox era, um, you, you kind of suggested that maybe your initial reaction to it wasn't that great, um, you know, or, or maybe suspicious. I, I don't know what the right way to, 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 to say it is, but, um, no, throw me in the chopping block. Keep going. <laughs> I think a lot of people have, uh, have a similar, you know, suspicion when a new writer comes on and sort of shakes the status quo. Um, what were your like initial thoughts about it and how have they grown now that you're like kind of part of the X office? Well, look, I mean, so yeah, you, I think it's not a surprise uh, to folks that we as creators talk, uh, but you know, as with any type of, <clears throat> there's no water cooler in comics. Uh, well, there is, it's Twitter. And, um, <laughs> But in any in one of those situations, like you're really playing a game of telephone, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right. Like by the time rumors of what John was planning 
uh, reached me. I was suspicious of it because as a, you know, as, 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 uh, as a Jewish person, as a bisexual person, I'm pretty suspect of like exclusive communities and things like that. Uh, of course, people deserve a safe place, but you know, once you're playing this game of gossip and, and, oh, this is what John's doing, the, the, the subtlety is lost. So, you know, by the time things reach me and it's like only, you know, they, they have their own Island and no one else can come in. Well, no one else can come in under any terms. Yeah. That gave me pause because, you know, I'm not trying to make this too, too much of a serious podcast, but you know, as, as a bisexual person, it's like, okay, well, if, if we have this exclusive gay space, well, to me, historically, it's only a matter of time until, well, there starts to be, well, you're not gay enough, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, you're, you don't identify strongly enough. A thing that I've been told regularly in my life without there being an exclusive island. Um, and then it's, well, you can have queer people, but only queer people who are presenting queer, not queer people who are in relationships that appear heterosexual, like Dakin and Aurora. I mean, he's not any less bisexual uh, for being with Aurora. Right. Uh, so I had, I was suspicious is, is, the, is, the right, is the right answer. Um, but that said, uh, once the book came out, obviously it was not as, as simplistic and, and, and totalitarian as, as, as I had worried, you know, or I was suspect of, you know, from the beginning, you know, you, you, people can come, humans can come by invitation. Uh, and I think that that is great. It puts the power in, in the community that's been historically marginalized, but it also doesn't say we're just going to shut ourselves off uh and and sort of stew uh and so i yeah i had my suspicions uh but as with anything once the book finally came out uh they were all engaged as if as if as if presciently uh and diffused uh and 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 the world that we have now is everything i would want it to be it is it is place it is not a perfect place because no i mean none all these things are works in progress our world's a work in progress um but it gives it gives mutants a place to exist uh, and be the ones in power, and at the same time, does not cut them off from the world culture right. uh, and greater participation. Uh, and so it's 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 exactly where I hoped it would land, but I couldn't, of course, know that until uh, you know <laughs> things came out. So now that that's a that's definitely a you know thought that is heavy, I think, on people's minds as they have read a Marauders Annual that has just come out. Uh, because a lot of those, let's call them bad bad faith takes about uh, a mutant island where there is some exclusivity, uh, that that is the root of the conflict in the Marauders Annual, uh, with Brimstone Love being a bad faith actor talking about how actually mutants have turned their back on all their allies and everything is bad now. Uh, and to me, that is such a interesting approach to a comic like this to walk a very fine line of directly addressing concerns that people have had while talking about hey hold on let's look at this in the plot and make an engaging story out of it what a what drove you to have that be your you know initial statement on the books that's what you're coming out of the gate on is here's you know my thoughts on Krakoa right there well, I think in many ways it's an exorcism of my old opinions. You know, mm. like if I if I I was being a, uh, like a reductionist asshole about it back in the day, so why not turn that into a villain who is a reductionist asshole? Of course, the difference being that I did not have the assets to know what you know Krakoa was really going to be, uh, whereas uh, Love knows very well that what he's peddling is bullshit, but it's bullshit that people will get sucked into. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I, I, myself, am not a, a, a geomancer, uh, you know, bullish guy, oh, but that, at the that, same that, time, going to take out a lot of the questions we had prepared. So, but that said, um, I am hot tempered, but, um, but no, I wanted to, you know, I had gone through this process myself in coming to love the current era as it was rolled out. Uh, and I thought, why not engage a lot of the assumptions I made and, 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 and build a story out of that. Cause it was my own story. Uh, you know, what better way to engage as I, as I step into this office in this world than to dispel or at least imbue a lot of the wrong, uh, assumptions I made into a character and, you know, to take a character brimstone love and give him something that I think is potentially more long lasting. I mean, I, I mean, his, his initial, uh, theater of pain, sadistic, 
sadomasochism stuff was interesting, but I think that there's deeper depths there, hmm. you know, that, that you can find. We've got to talk about that. Uh, this is a book where the antagonist is Brimstone Love from the X-Men 2099. <laughs> well, this is a book where the antagonist is Brimstone Love. Like that's, you know, it's funny. Like since we showed him on the cover, everybody has been sort of like theorizing, oh, did he come back in time and things like that? But I, I gotta be honest, uh, it, we're sort of in an Occam's razor situation here. N not to age you, me, and anyone listening, but 2099 is only like 75 years away. Yeah, it's and, really upsetting. And, and mutants can be resurrected now. So uh, <laughs> like, I think people are kind of overcomplicating like where he comes from. He, com yeah. he comes from the X-Men title, X-Men 2099. <laughs> How about that? Oh, I know, but people do think, oh, like he's coming back. But no, like he, uh, like this is the, the, I mean, they, we don't like, uh, this is the, the 616, I mean, version or whatever you want to say. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, why 2099? Cause I fucking loved it when I was younger. And if you go back and read it, I mean, there are obviously some things that have not aged amazingly, but I think the majority of it, I think John Francis Moore wrote and mm -hmm. it's, it's very ahead of its time. Uh, it, you know, like openings the with themes about mutant community that the mainline books wouldn't delve into until like Morrison's run. Like, yeah, I mean, and you know, even, even the need for like intersectionality, intersectionality, pardon me, in the mutant community, like when she, when Cheyenne is uh, running down the previous mutant leaders before him, like everyone between him and Xavier are all, uh, at least based off their names, that's all we know, are all, are all leaders of color. Right. You know, and, and it just like a lot of the small cultural details uh, I think are really, really ahead of their time. Uh, and you know, it, it was just, it always been an exciting book for me. I loved Skullfire as a kid because his name was Skullfire. <laughs> um, I also love Bloodhawk for the same reason. Like, let's not, let's not overcomplicate it like Bloodhawk, but, um, uh, and you know, Cerebra, probably one of the first, uh, one of the first Indian, uh, mutant characters to be introduced. Mm -hmm. um, you know, regardless of timeline in the early nineties, like, like it was for decades before trinary. Uh, and I just, and, and that goes for a lot of those other things. If you went and look back, I would argue there probably weren't many, uh, I believe mean streak is of a Chinese background off the top of my head. Yes. Uh, you know, like, like it was, it was, it, it nailed a lot of things that would be coming in the main line. I mean, we're talking at least 10 years later, I think. Mm -hmm. I think Mean Street's name is, Hen is Henry Wong, but I don't know for sure. So I could be wrong. Uh, he, he definitely, he, he definitely has a, has Asian heritage. I believe he's also French, but. Oh, so, he's, so, he's, so he's Henri Wong. That, that, that may be, that may be right. <laughs> It's been it's been a spell since I've done a deep dive into X Men twenty ninety nine, and I have been very tempted. Uh, just thanks to Brimstone, love being around again. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and also like in, in a in a very like Neanderthalic sense, the action figure was cool as hell when I was younger, and I think he, you know, and and again, we need more. A lot of the villains from back in the day are on the Quiet Council now, so like we we need some people. We need some people who are who are there to step in their place. And in, mm -hmm. in Love's case, he could fight the whole team. He's he, you know he's a tank. He's so I you know I'll be happy to put him here and happy when he returns if he returns. But come on, <laughs> you you don't you don't wrap up his story in the annuals. I think I think it's fair to say that if there, there's more to tell about Brimstone Love. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you'll see him. I mean, we have the plot of the first, well, barring some stop-offs for things you guys don't know about, the plot of the first 10 issues is massive. And it's not a spoiler to say it, it spans billions of years. Whoa. Uh, I mean, that's in the solicits. So I, I, I know exactly what we wrote there. So I know what I can say and what I, what I can. <laughs> um, and at the same time, we'll have someone on the trail of love. And it's kind of like, <laughs> in a way it's kind of like my favorite little cutaway scenes that I've been doing because it's well, well, you'll see an issue one, but, uh, sure. it's, uh, it's, it's been very pleasing. And, um, my, you might see other obscure ass villains kind of get repositioned because again, I think that now is the perfect time to add some other people and give them a push in wrestling terms because, you know, guys like apocalypse 
are off the table. They're, uh, you know, he's an Ameth. Guys like Sinister are on the fucking Quiet Council. Uh, I mean, he's obviously still villainous to anyone reading that book, but he's not like, you know. Oh, so you you don't condone all of Sinister's actions? Are you you (laughs) taking that bold stance? Yeah, please read the data page in Marauders 1. That is one of my favorite things I've ever written, which is just a transcription of him, Dr. Nemesis, and Reyes uh, arguing over whether or not Cassandra's a mutant. Uh, and there's only one adult in that room, and you can already predict who it is. Uh, <laughs> it's not sinister, um, but um, that'll be in that'll be in Marauders one. But yeah, no. So I mean, I yeah, Love will obviously be back, and uh, you know, Dakin and Akihiro are probably going to want uh, <laughs> a reckoning. Uh, so and and although he oh, there's oh so much. Provided we get away with it, the fight he has in issue five with someone is truly visceral. Uh, I, read, uh, I read Victor Laval Sabretooth one, and I was like, "All right, I have to raise my game." <laughs> very oh, you lo- I love how there's like these little competitions that happen between you guys that uh, you know you're trying to one up each other. Well, the funny thing is, like that book is written by Victor, who is an incredibly nice like person uh, and much smarter than me, and drawn by Leonard Kirk, who also is one of the nicest people in comics. And yet, it's this book where just people are wearing intestines like hats, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's really uh, it was. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book, uh, but it was really surprising to me. Um, one of the things that you have a history of is uh, pulling out very deep continuity cuts uh, in your books, and. Um, obviously we just talked about Brim, uh, stone love, but there's other characters just in this annual like Carver or, yeah, uh, I didn't ever, I recognized Carver immediately and I did not ever expect to see Carver again. <laughs> well, I needed an asshole. So I came up with a guy who was historically an asshole as well. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I do have to say, I did send my friend a message when I got this, uh, and said, "Oh, this is this is the most Steve Orlando character that could exist," and he was already uh, in the book. He oh, really? I, I, I guess in in some respects, I was going to say I thought the the best deep cut was Stitch from the uh, from the flight. They weren't even Alpha Flight back then. Uh, <laughs> back with Wolverine, and uh, I think I believe Saint Elmo was on that team as well. Uh, well, here but, here's my problem: I did not read a not Alpha Flight book. Mm. Well, it does sound like it's a problem for you, my friend. <laughs> it is. It well, is. And and this is this leads to the question, which is, um, you know, when you drop a character, you know, we're we're deep continuity heads. At least we feel like it. And then you hit us up with somebody like Bouncer, who we have to look up. Uh, do you get a kick out of exploring continuity so that you can surprise fans with these uh, little little cameos? I'm glad people enjoy it, but. I shouldn't say, but I'm glad people enjoy it. And the fact to me is that like, I, I really, in a perfect world, I'd, ha- I'd have time to polish all these things. Cause you know what? Someone made those characters and, and, and I guess the secret, none of us set out to make a bad comic. So someone loved those characters, mm-hmm. you know? And so if I could remind people that they're there and add a little value to them uh, and, you know, also like not just the creator, somebody probably liked that character when they read the book. So if I can have a scene and just remind folks that someone that maybe they like to still around, uh, you know, like it is very pleasing for me, but it also comes from the perspective of, you know, there's going to be a lot of new in Marauders. There's always a lot of new in my work, but at the same time, uh, these characters exist in a world and you know, why, if you, if it could be anyone, why not make it someone, you know, like, could it have been some random that uh, Tempo was breaking up with? Sure. But why not, remind people that this character is around and has a life and maybe there's more story in between if someone else wants to pick it up. Um, and you know, that, that, that's really where I'm coming from. Uh, and especially in the X-Men, the world of X-Men and the X-Men office, everybody, I don't think I will ever stump X fans and I don't set out to, I set out to celebrate these obscure characters that someone probably still gets excited about. I know they do because when I put Mammo Max on the dark ride, (laughs) excited and 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 i'm happier for it that's great now speak speaking of new marauders also features uh one of the characters that you uh introduced over the summer uh insomnus when you're uh when you're creating a character like that and especially writing him into uh your story what what do you look for to have that character add you know when you're saying here's a new piece 
do you look for what you think is missing in a book? What elements you want to add? Or do you start from a character perspective of what would this care, what character do I want to write and then find a way to work them into the stories that you're telling? Well, in Somnus's case, it's, it, it's kind of a little of both because I, uh, again, shocking no one, I've done my fair share of fucking pride specials. Uh, and, and I've created a lot of new, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus characters, mostly at DC, because that's where I was, but I created a new one or spotlighted an old one in every book I did at some point. So for me, that brings up what you, one of the, one of the facets of what you said, if I'm going to do this, how can I, how can I do it and make it different? Like every time I create or, or do one of these little shorts, uh, I always try to say something new, um, which is no shade anyone doing something else, stories of people falling in love, finding their pride, acceptance. It's just that I've told those stories before. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, we, we were doing Marvel Voices Pride the same time I was doing DC Pride. DC Pride, I was like, oh, well, I said I'd never go back to Midnighter. Now here I am back to Midnighter. So I should at least do something different. And that's why we talked about straight washing in that story. I think that I never really have, I I never really talked about in a comic before. It's why we talked about bisexual erasure and Martian Manhunter with Diane Mead. Um, And in the case of Somnus, it was a chance to talk about queer elders, which is something that I hadn't really uh, done um, yet either. And and that, you know, much like the, the rescue part of Marauders, that comes from my own life. I moved to Boston. Uh, my neighbors are all are are not all, but many of my neighbors are are gay men in their mid seventies uh, who lived through the AIDS crisis, and you know they're living history. Uh, they, they, I I treasure knowing them, uh, and and you know on their terms, uh, listening to you know when they speak about what they what they survived, and I can't give them the life you know I have with my boyfriend now or the life that my even younger cousins have now, like rolling around on TikTok with their dicks out or whatever they do. Um, but I could create a character like Somnus that is an homage to that, you know, and, and in, in, in Somnus, you have someone who does get that second chance. What I wish I could do for these folks, you know, it's, did he live a bad life as we say? No. And that was important to me. I didn't want his story to be one of like queer suffering, like, you know, he died of old age, surrounded by family that loved him, but didn't know his whole truth. And and so it was a compromised life. And obviously, when you have someone like Akihiro in that story, well, he's not just going to stand for that shit. So what to him is the most reasonable thing, digging up his ex-lover's corpse and resurrecting them is, is what happens. Um, but the real thing is with Somnus is, yes, I want to be able to talk about, uh, about queer elders and I want to be able to offer a story of someone getting a second chance who has watched his culture take leaps and bounds uh, around him. And then, of course, apply that to mutant uh, culture as well, because he is both a mutant and a gay man. And in both cases, uh, the world of today is nothing like the world of 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's where he came from. And I also think that's what makes him a great uh, point of view character for the book, because all these things that seem mundane for your average mutant are incredibly fresh to him now. I mean, if you're on the X-Men, going to space is like going to fucking Whole Foods, <laughs> you know? Uh, but there's still wonder for him in doing these things. And 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 that and that's a big part of his role in the initial arc. Um, as well, how his dream powers work and, you know, uh, how he begins to realize how the, the applications of them. Because, you know, he spent a lifetime with, with Dakin in one night or with Akihiro uh, I tend to alternate between them both, as you can see, uh, in the 60s. Um, but slowly he's realizing, well, you know, he doesn't just have to play out these relationships. Can he spend a lifetime training with Red Lotus? Can he spend a lifetime learning, uh, you know, uh, other other skills in the same way that you had that period where Madrox was having his dupes learn different things. So, mm-hmm. um, and there's also one other key power that, uh, or side effect of Simon's power that gets brought up in issue one uh, by someone uh, that, you know, makes him sort of stand out in that because he has to welcome other people into his own dreamscape, he's like the ultimate doorman on mm. his mind. So though it's not an offensive power, um, no one can get into his head if he doesn't want them to. And then it also goes for people like Charles and Cassandra. So it's, 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 it's not an offensive power, but it could be a strategic one uh, that'll come into play uh, in the future of the book. Hey, do you think it's wild that you just like mentioned Red Lotus as if that's a character that everybody knows? 
Uh, well, if they don't, then I guess that's on them. I like that you want people to have done their homework. I appreciate that. Um, now, you just mentioned um, this perspective of, you know, an elder queer character and, and wanting to, to speak to that. Um, this Marauders cast that you have um, does have multiple queer characters. You're centering queer relationships with characters like Tempo. Um, uh, the Marauders Annual also had uh, Iceman and Christian Frost kind of going on a date in Somnus's mind. Um, <laughs> we're seeing uh, sort of a level of representation that I don't think readers, I, I think that readers want, but maybe haven't seen in the past. Um, what are some ways in which you are looking to sort of delve into these kinds of uh of stories in ways that are new. Um, Cause you just said like, Hey, just cause I'm telling this kind of a story, I don't want to be one note about it. Um, are there things that you want to explore with these characters that maybe you haven't gotten a chance to before? Um, well, I think you'll see that insomnia sort of trying to break free of the mold of what relationships were thought of, you know, when he sort of came of age versus now. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in the same way that I wanted to, uh, when I was on Midnighter, have sort of a sex positive take that, you know, d- didn't immediately like marry him up or partner him up as a way to chasten him. Uh, I think that there's there's a joy to exploring uh, the, the present, uh, both in the real, you know, uh, the the uh, the lens of the real world and, and, and on Krakoa where, you know, Simon doesn't have to just like be dating one person or things like that. If he doesn't want to, he can play the field, he can explore. Uh, and and I and there, I think there is a joy there. And again, the thing that I haven't gotten to really talk about, but that we will, um, and I, we already do, uh, is what I said before. Like I am a bisexual man, uh, and 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 we and 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 Akihiro's sexuality is just as valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he's with Aurora and that, I mean, that is something I haven't really gotten to talk about a lot. You know, my, my best relationship, um, besides the one I'm currently in was, was with someone who at the time identified as a woman, this was 15 years ago. Uh, and we were both bisexual and, you know, it, it was no less valid than the relationship I'm in now, uh, mm-hmm. as far as my identity goes. So to me, that is one of the, the, the big, uh, pushes characterization wise of the book. But if folks have read my stuff, like they know that this is not a, uh, I've never been someone who likes to scream my themes, uh, at the top of my lungs. So <laughs> the, the implicit acceptance of these characters is a theme in of itself in my work. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and though there will be struggle in the book, I tend to avoid struggle coming from sexuality. I will say that. Because we've seen that. We've all seen Brokeback Mountain. No one's getting beaten to death with a tire iron uh, in my books. At least not for being, uh, at least not for their sexuality. Maybe for being a piece of shit, that might happen. Well, other other books uh, and people who would use a tire iron to beat uh, <laughs> others with uh, that you're writing is uh, co-writing Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird. <laughs> I, I truly believe that uh, John Proudstar would absolutely use a tire iron if needed. And and he'd be insulted. You'd think he would need a tire iron. Uh, <laughs> he wouldn't, but sometimes you like that flourish. Yeah. You know, no, some, I, sometimes, sometimes you need a prop. Maybe a uh, folding chair. From a, from a wrestling standpoint, I, I feel like <laughs> occasionally. Uh, he beats people with a Jeep in the book. <laughs> We're talking about wrestling. You're co-writing that with... Uh, AEW star Nyla Rose. One, what's that like? <laughs> you're a big, you're a big wrestle, wrestle boy. You're a wrestling fan. What's it? What's uh, it like? It means when I make jokes about Hook on Fridays, I get direct text messages instead of direct messages now from Nyla about <laughs> about things. Wow. Uh, no, Nyla. Nyla has been amazing. You know, like what? Uh, when we found out that Thunderbird was going to come back, mm-hmm. I sort of pitched it to the the X Men office. As like, a, there's no way this is going to happen. But I was like, well, you know, I'm acquainted with Nyla from from social media. What if I just wrote it with with her? You know, like because her character is very similar in personality to <laughs> uh, to Thunderbird, and like, and and it would be perfect. Like we get, um, you know, we, we bring her in. Uh, we we add 
you know, the vital authenticity of that project. And I, but I was still like, oh, this would never happen. Like they'll never sign off on all of the, the red tape and all these things. But as it turns out, Sarah Brunstad, who's been integral in the book, also a big wrestling fan. So she was ready to champion uh, bringing Nyla in. And um, I mean, Nyla's mind, as you would imagine, as someone who tells narratives about violence every week, uh, is a great fit. Uh, for the character and, and her, her her perspective has been invaluable and not just her perspective, by the way, but also that of David Cutler, who uh, is our artist on the book, uh, comes from a First Nations background. So we really from top to bottom, I, I'm very proud to be able to to basically just be here to help these people tell their story um, and 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 give Thunderbird the introduction that he deserves. And uh, I, I couldn't have been happier with how things are going, you know, like there is obviously uh, everybody's opinions. Anytime any character has a new costume and his new costume is very different. Mm -hmm. It was very pleasing to me is to see folks who are actually from a native background getting it, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I found threads online that were like, oh, well, here's why these colors are important to native folks, uh, which to me is more important than we like the red and blue one. And that's what he looked like in 1950. Well, A, like Warpath is right there. Right. Yeah, we'll <laughs> that costume soon. But B, you know, that wasn't designed by anyone. With I mean, it was designed by uh, probably Cockrum. Cockrum. Dave Cockrum. Yep. And Dave Cockrum is an amazing designer. But I would not go out of my way to guess that he did intense research on Native culture. I would doubt that. Um, <laughs> and so, what, to see someone like really understand that the colors of Thunderbird's new costume are 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 extremely meaningful for for folks from that background is very pleasing for me. And yeah, I can't wait for people to see it. As I said, it is uh, it is extremely violent, uh, but at the same time, like you know exactly who he is by the end of that book. And, and, and that, that's been our goal from the start. How can we differentiate him from Warpath? How can we show where he fits in? And, and how can we show people who he really is? And uh, who that is, is someone as his, uh, as another character says in the book, is someone who is not necessarily, who is not often kind, but is always fair to the bone. And I think that tells you all you need to know about him. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see you guys re revisit this character uh, who I, I think you mentioned this earlier, maybe before we went on air is, has kind of been used as sort of a, a almost a totem, you know, throughout Warpath's life. And now we'll get a chance to actually go on uh, his own adventures again, which is pretty exciting. I mean, yeah, he's not a nice guy. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 easy to to deify people when they're not around to show you that they're anything but that. Uh, but we do offer him more complexity than he was offered in the past. Uh, but that said, I mean, like he is directly responsible for his own death. Which <laughs> I'm only laughing about because the airplane as hard as he punched <laughs> the airplane. Constantly. Well, yeah, as every other member of the team is like, you got to get off that. And he's like, well, I'm not listening to you. Um, okay. Uh, but that said, I have been that stubborn routinely in my life. So I find mm -hmm. that extremely relatable. No, it's, it's exciting. There's a lot of fun stuff that's coming. Uh, and you know what? I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, so Steve, uh, beyond, beyond that, do you got anything on the table that you want to let folks know about that's coming, coming soon? Well, I mean, there, I mean, so, so folks who follow me on social know that I posted art by Paul Fry of Miguel, uh, Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. So while I can't say what it is, I do not think that I'm crossing any lines by saying I am working on a 2099 project that nice. is very exciting to me uh, as, as someone who grew up reading that. And uh, Paul Fry's art uh, is, is incredible. And all the other artists involved are just like top to bottom over delivering. You're going to see uh, folks that you... Uh, love from back in the day. You're going to see new versions of existing Marvel characters, uh, you know, uh, in t with 2099 identities, and you're going to see original characters as well. So it's very pleasing to me. I, I, I'm like, I'm chomping at the bit to say more, but I, you know, who knows when I'll be able to, but <laughs> it's in progress. Um, you know, if we, we would love to, Nyla and I would love to do more Thunderbirds so that a lot of that will depend on how the giant size issue is received, but mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that being said too, there's just so much coming in Marauders. I teased that there's going to be uh, a ninth person who joins. Um, but even beyond that, like I said, like we are, you asked about joining the office and I have been 
so empowered and excited about how supportive everyone has been and collaborative. So by the end of the first 10 issues, there will be revelations that, you know, tie back to John's work in House of X. I mean, again, it says in the solicits, you know, John notes that Apocalypse is the first of the second generation of mutants. Uh, we're going to be exploring the first generation, the last of the first. And it's it's going to matter. It's it, it's it, it's going to directly tie to things that will be going on with with Krakoa and Araco, and to be building out just thousands of years of history is is like a dream come true for me. Uh, we'll see if it makes it into the final solicits, but I did put an issue for. I said uh, uh, the the last line was, and also including ten thousand years of first appearances. So. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully that's my best selling issue ever. Uh, but it's just like it's it's easily the instant I saw Eleonora's work in the main book, it instantly became some of my favorite stuff I've been part of, along with like Martian Manhunter or Killaman at Aftershock. Mm-hmm. Um and the support has been wholly unique. They just keep saying swing bigger, go farther, and uh, you know, we're gonna try for as long as we can. Nice. That's exciting. That's I it's really exciting. There, there is nothing I like more in comics than a big swing. Uh, <laughs> well, this one is pretty large, my friend. So. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, if if folks want to find you online anywhere that they should be following you on those socials media. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at the Steve Orlando in both cases, and I'm pretty accessible there. So I, you, I don't even know if my Facebook is is public anymore or, or viewable, but I keep that for my personal stuff. So find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter. It's very easy. I, I am on Twitter until my boyfriend says to put my phone down. <laughs> so I'll be there. I can, I can appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that folks. That will, uh, that'll definitely do it for this episode. Definitely want to thank Steve again for, uh, joining us here. Uh, before before the end of this episode, folks, we actually have something a little special for you. Uh, the artist for uh, the Marauders Annual Number One, uh, Chris Lee, uh, and I had a conversation back at C two E two that we're going to add to this, uh, talking a bit about the book and what uh, Chris has been doing. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, otherwise, next week we're going to be talking. What are we talking about next week, Adam? Talking about Galactus of all things. Oh yeah, be... the X Men character Galactus, <laughs> yeah. and all all of the all of the good Galactus stories in X Men. Talking about Red Lotus, noted icon <laughs> of the underworld, Red Lotus. I think we may have actually covered every Red Lotus appearance appearance in the six hundred stories that we have previously covered. It's possible, yeah. yeah. Well, it's... listen, my run's not over yet. Someday, someday, if you really want to know where my heart is for things that I haven't planned yet, someday lifeguards, someday slipstream. Uh, <laughs> you are yeah. making so many people happy right now. There's, no, there's or mad. I mean, it could, be, it could go both ways, really. <laughs> I said someday, folks, and uh, I mean the list. The list is uh, is long. Oh, and someday, uh, a a big positive and exciting reimagination of a character of the Mutant Liberation Front that was done real dirty. But I'll leave that a mystery. So. Ooh, hey, like we're excited to hear that. <laughs> But until then, folks, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. I'm here with Chris. You are an artist, and you are the artist on the upcoming Marauders Annual Number 1, uh, relaunching the series uh, with Steve Orlando. Yes. With that, That's a, uh, I would call that a very weird X-Men book. Honestly, I've never heard about the Marauders before. Really? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not caught up on any of... Well, how dare you? Yeah, no, seriously. Um, no, yeah, it's tough catching up on all the comics, you know, mm-hmm. one. yeah, so I mean, I did my research, I did some research before drawing it, mm-hmm. uh, but no, yeah, it, it seemed really cool, got me interested in it. So you were, you were more approaching this as just like, this is a new project to me, it's got nothing, nothing, uh, on the background that I have to live up to, it's just, I'm going to do this best I can. Yeah, I mean, it was my first. Uh, full issue for Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, so I kind of was more excited about just getting the offer right. than whichever title, you know, like having a preference on the title that it's worked on. So now you've been doing a lot of covers for Marvel, other publishers for the last little bit. What's the difference in your mind going from some, you know, some of these covers, which I'm looking at your commissions and your prints and all this stuff, very strong detailed work. Thank how you. do you, how do you switch your mind to go from, you know, these big cover pieces to the sequentials on the interiors? Yeah, um, it's 
it's tough because you know each page is full of like average like five or six different illustrations right, right? and you have to tell a story um, so it's not just about making an image look cool and like catching catching people's eyes but you really have to make the story makes sense and like there's like eye flow and um, composition to think about to like help move the story um, so yeah no it's tough uh, but like Doing the layouts, I try to think about all the things that I learned, um, how to draw comics, and mm -hmm. try to incorporate that into every page to make the best page as possible. So you kind of look at the overall page as one illustration. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's different, but I try. <laughs> sure. So what would you say, if you were going to describe your artistic influences, what yeah. kind of drives you? Because I'm, I'm looking at a, you know, a GRU commission that you're doing right now. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Very different than some of the other detailed like prints you got got up here. There's some of these that have like a manga influence. Some of them that are closer to like a turn of the turn of the century. Uh, what am I trying? Like a decompressed Brian Hitch, uh, okay. David Finch kind of very detailed style. I mean, what what do you think? You know, because I'm seeing a lot here. Where do you yeah. kind of come from when it comes to your art? Well, this one, this commission specifically of crew, I had no idea who this character was. <laughs> Um, and this for this kind of for a friend, so I kind of uh, said okay and sure. asked him if he if I if he wanted it in the original style or if in my style. Mm -hmm. And it's so unique that I think it'll be tough to incorporate into my style, right? Because you know when you look at this character, it's like the his body shape with like the really big upper half. Like if I translated that into like my style, I don't know if that would work as well. Right. So I kind of just kept it as original as possible. I mean, it's, it, it's very strongly a cartooning style. So yeah. Antonio is doing everything by hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, getting very um, expressive and all that. Yeah. But normally for my art, um, I think a couple people that I took the biggest influence from, like er especially early on. Um, I mean. Jim Lee, like mm -hmm. you know, like he's he's a big one for everyone. For everyone, but Jim Lee was uh, a big one. Kenneth Rockford. Yep. Um, I like take. I I really like certain things about their art. Like some people, I'll take like their anatomy. I'll try to take some of their anatomy from. Some people, I'll try to take like their inking from. So like uh, back then, it was more like uh, Sean Murphy, Mateo Sclera. Um, but then now recently, I've been looking. More like Olivier Coitel. Yep. Because I've been using pens more, trying to get like the little hatching. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like a weird mix. And then people say I have like a good mix of like Western and Eastern style. Sure. And I just say it comes from my blood. Uh, like I never really tried to, you know, I was never really hugely influenced by anime, but, um, you know, I think it's fair. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at this, uh, this original, this print you got right there that's yeah. got a lot of heavy. Heavy uh, Eastern influence on yeah, it. Yeah, so especially when I work with like when I try to recreate like an anime piece. Yep. I'll try to keep some of their style in, you know, and change it into my style because like it doesn't translate as well sometimes. Um, so like for the Demon Slayer piece, I'll try to like keep their eyes mm -hmm. the way they draw their eyes in the, in the manga and anime like similar when I draw it. So, so uh, but then like the shading, it might be completely different. Yep. Yeah. Now you you've mentioned that from a you know from a couple different pieces, you're trying to keep some of the influences of the original work. When you come to a you know IP like Marvel or DC, where those characters and those designs have been influenced and interpreted in darn near every style possible, yeah. where does your mind default? I know you mentioned you know Jim Lee, which is obviously yeah. a huge influence on the DC side. Yeah. Um. I think. Well, if it's for like a print or whatever, I think I feel like I have a little bit more freedom. Yep. Um, but when I was working on the Marauders, it was more just getting everything accurate uh, and like consistent with the previous comics. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I try not to change too much in case I'm I get in like trouble or something. I already <laughs> asked for like a lot of edits. So yeah, I'll I'll just like kind of default to the previous references that they give me mm -hmm. or like yeah. So. Good. So you got Marauders coming out in the you know, early 22. I think yeah, I think it's next month. Yep. So January. Yeah. Is there anything else on the docket that you've got you've got coming up that you can talk about? Um, I'm working on the creator on, but unfortunately I can't really talk about sure. it too much. Um, it's for a new publisher, uh, working with some friends, and 
Yeah, I've, I've been on that one, and then in the middle of that, I got contacted by Marvel to work on the new matter. So I had to. I couldn't say no. No, 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 uh, absolutely. Yeah, so I had to put that uh, other project kind of on hold, but everybody was like understanding, which was super cool. Um, I, I'm gonna continue to do covers though, uh, yep. as long as you know they they want me to. So I have a couple covers coming out. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can say. Sure, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's mostly just those things, whatever well, might come up in the future. So. Well, that sounds good. Hopefully, we'll see a lot more of you coming up soon.